Yo, how are you doing, folks? Welcome to episode 18 of the Simple Life Podcast with me, Simpicata. I'm joined, as always, by Mr. Maka. How are you this evening, sir? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. I'm not going to choke on my water. Um, just ha- I'll just have to... I'll interrupt here, and I'll just, just put out a, an extra apology to Fiona because we did have you on previously, and I made an absolute bollocks of the of the recording so we just basically had a two-hour recording of absolute silence so hopefully <laughs> fingers crossed this one is going to be good or in terms of audio quality i'm sure it's going to be good in terms of content and now i'm just embarrassed myself and fucked it up pass it back over to you pass it back pass it back <laughs> <laughs> i love throwing that man a fucking hot grenade uh, our guest today as um Macker has already said we've had on previously but unfortunately we had a technological glitch which meant that we only recorded one microphone which wouldn't have made uh, for a very good conversation and listening uh, our guest today is Fiona Gilbertson. She's the co-founder of Recovering Justice, um, former advisor to the Chief Constable uh, of County Durham. Uh, Fiona has 25 years of experience of advocacy dealing with HIV, drugs, and sex work. Um, she works on policy development and lobbying with Recovering Justice. Uh, without further ado, I'll throw you over on to Fiona to introduce herself a little bit better than I did there. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Simpa. Uh, thanks for that introduction. Can I just say that the one that the last recording was just genius. Like I was just sensational. And <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Like no. It, it was like a TED talk. It was just genius. <laughs> um, no, listen, my sound is a bit strange because I've got a dog who's grooming herself just behind me. So, um, yeah. That's and nice. I was saying to Simpa, like I feel really kind of, isolated i mean we are all isolated i've just noticed like i've kind of not got as much passion because i'm not working with people like i'm not i get energy from different like meeting different people and random conversations and and that's not happening so i feel quite i'm not depressed i just feel quite flat and no, so I, I imagine that might be reflected in this. Uh, listen, there's no need to be worried about that. Um, we'll do try try our best to uh, to spur you on, and maybe <laughs> maybe you know what I mean. Listen, I, I totally get it. I totally get it. I have days where I I honestly just wonder what's the fucking point mm. with everything. <laughs> and and here's the thing: not not just even with this. No, that might be a shock to to Simba or whatever. He's probably going, "What the it's fuck?" Not, it's it's not. No, but I, do you know what I mean? I just go, well, what, what's mm. the fucking point? Like, I don't get it. Like, and, and today I went out for a run and I hadn't been out in the last week because it's been fucking freezing. And I had to I had to remind myself, you have to celebrate this. You haven't been out of the house in a fucking week. The only time you go around is, is, is down to the shop. Do you know that kind of way? And that's, that's the level of social interaction that you get. Well, I think you you constantly have to remind yourself, right, that this is this is temporary and it will it will pass. It really, mm-hmm. really will. And I'm just going to go hell for leather. I'm going to hug everybody. Postman. I don't give a <laughs> fuck. Do you know, seriously, because no. it's like I'm just going to got to make up for it. Right. Yeah, so. I think that's going to be the, the mentality of everybody. I think, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, all of our listeners that will resonate with immediately, Fiona. And I'm I'm not worried about the the con- the content of this. You know me; I'm a very impassionate person. I'm sure 15 minutes into this, I'll have everybody brazen and rallying around. It'll be grand. Um, but uh, so yeah, I suppose could you give uh, our listeners an idea of sort of what Recovering Justice is and why you co-founded it? 
Um, Recovering Justice was set up uh, about, we started about 2013, we'd watched, I'd watched two films and I was part of a recovery charity and not, not wildly passionate about that. Um, and that was an organisation, yeah, it was an organisation founded to look at health interventions for people who who have problematic relationships with drugs. And I watched a film called The House I Live In, and there's a, <clears throat> it's all about the war on drugs. And there was something around that, that, like I just kept getting people in my house and saying, you need to watch this, you need to watch this. And like, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I just knew that I, it just all started falling into place. It was like, this is the damage that we're done to my community. Like, this is, this is the fundamental thing that underpinned all of the violence that we were involved in, all of the, you know, prison, long prison sentences, <clears throat> all of the kind of stigma and um, the shame that we were kind of, that I'd internalized and like so many of the days. And I kind of had this idea that when I was younger, it was like, well, you took really seriously bad drugs and there's consequences for that. Um, and I framed like there was good and bad drugs, there was good and bad people. And, you know, I never ever thought like, what are the, policies that underpin this and I wanted recovering justice to be a voice for people who like the 10% of people who, who do use problematically and will always have some consequences to that um, but I wanted them to reclaim their voice in a policy context that was not around um, harsher sentences because I'd also heard that you know it was like well you know I was taking cannabis when I was 15 and then the next thing I was taking heroin and prison was the best place for me or do you know I believe that we need to get drugs off the street so that kind of rhetoric I wanted to challenge that and I wanted to to um I suppose co-opt a lot of my friends that had those similar experiences into that and yeah that's kind of what we did and it's really strange you said you know you in your introduction you talked about, you know, chief advice, like advisors to chief, the chief constable. And I'm really, I'm not, so yeah, clearly that is a role that I held within recovering justice. And we had um, worked with the police and went like, a, oh God, even that, like worked with the police, it just sounds appalling. I went, <laughs> When I say we worked with the police, we um, put, helped them arrange a conference where we brought uh, Ruth Trafus, uh from to come and speak about heroin-assisted treatment in County Durham. And I took that role on, and I remember being quite... What am I saying? I find the police a really, really problematic organisation, and I have met some really astounding reformists within the police force mm -hmm. and I want to be really clear I think we need to defund the police um do you know diversion isn't yeah so I am not pro-police 
Um, as an organisation, I find it extremely problematic. I've never experienced violence from men unless they were police officers. Mm. Do you know, they are not. So when I say work with police, it's like, do you know, you can't, as somebody who's had a problem, problematic relationship with illicit substances, like I am going to come into contact with them. Mm-hmm. And I would rather that that was in reform spaces. But there are very, very problematic institution <laughs> filled with often very, very damaged human beings. You know, we talk about the psychology of what people who take drugs are, you know, and we look at their traumas and, you know, what happens to them in their childhood. You never ask, why would you want to put a uniform on and arrest other people? <laughs> Do you know, and I think if we did that, you'd find that 60 to 70% of them were not doing it for public good. They were doing it to work out some shadow in themselves. Yeah, I, I would 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 tend to would tend to agree, to agree yeah. with that, um, mm. and I think it's 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 part and parcel of it. Obviously, I'm quite a, a new activist, I suppose, still quite young and got a long way to go. Um, but I very much started with an attitude of "you're wrong," kind of "fuck you," we're going to do it anyway, and then evolved to a position of we've learned the law, we've learned about the culture, we've learned the science, we've we've learned about the rates of consumption in society, and then we've gone to try to communicate with them but again as you've said there is it's a it's a hitting a brick wall within there because a lot of the people within higher up positions in institutions are still avid prohibitionists mm. so their drugs are bad why because they're illegal why are they illegal because they're bad and you end up stuck in that rhetorical rhetoric but it takes people like yourself to be able to get into those rooms with those people and will listen to you because of the organizations you represent so yeah i can see what you're saying about um it problematic to work with the police, but to some extent we have to engage with them at least. Not yeah. to be not to say to be complicit. And I think um, something which was going to be one of my, my next questions was going to be how do you feel about sort of the current reform movement globally? We still have a lot of problem with the idea of addiction as a disease model coming in, especially from America. And then we've sort of got the idea of still abstinence-based recovery still kicking around in a lot of spaces. And we are going obviously assisted around say heroin but other drugs, there's still not that real push around yet. Um, that's a really interesting question. I one of the one of the one of our aims was to create bridges between different what we saw as different movements that really had the same kind of objective. So how, and when we started the recovery movement, we're not on board with drug policy reform. I mean, you wouldn't know that now because, I mean, we've been successful, other organizations have been successful, but getting people in recovery on board with why it was really important um, to campaign for drug policy reform was quite new. And um, yeah, so I, I think, um, yeah, I'm really not on, I'm not on form tonight at all. Um, ask me another question or, or re- <laughs> like just, yeah, uh, so like a re- remind me. Yeah, I'll re the question, I suppose, in a slightly different way. Um, do, do you feel that the current um, 
direction of, of reform is going in, in the right way? Are we having the right conversation if we're only focusing the conversation on the 10 to 20 odd percent of people dependent on the substance that suffered the dependency issues? Maybe I'm a little too close to it. What I think will happen is, like, we, I mean, in, in the few years that I've been doing this, there's been massive reforms. You look at Canada, you look at some of the states, um, Scotland. Scotland, I think, hope for, like, I've got hope for Scotland as a small country. And I think... As an organisation and also as an as an individual activist, I'm always looking at where the edge is, because what I have real fears of is that we will just push for reform that will hand illicit drugs over to a capitalist system, and doing that without any checks and balances. Um, I think Canada's extremely like, I don't know, I don't know on what, I don't know how you call that a success. Mm. Um, and, you know, because I, yeah. No, and I, you're right. So it's not, so it's not reform. It's like, it is just moving from an illicit, like to, from the black market to the, to the legal economy. So and within that, I think there are ways that you can, um, so, I think what's really important is that activists stay in the space because we think we're, like it's our jobs done and it's like you need to have really brilliant, compassionate, non-capitalist systems that are ready to go in. And I know we can't always have, well, I mean, I know that's really aspirational and I think, I don't make apologies for being aspirational. And if the, le the, the least thing that can get done is like, this money needs to be ring-fenced. Mm. So if you're going to make a, a legal cannabis market, the ideal would be the people who are in prison now get recruited into that. Anybody who's got, has been part of that market does not get cut out as we gentrify it, mm -hmm. but gets to be part of it. I mean, there's ways we could make it like much fairer trade. We could try and keep Big Pharma out. You know, we could we could try and just put the brakes on some of it. Mm -hmm. And then if all of that fails, and I think you need to go into the room with that, because if you don't go in the room with that, you're going to get nothing. And then within that, like, can we ring fence the, the money that's going to be saved? And in Portugal, which has, I mean, obviously much better than what we have, and they're learning all the time, but they ring fence the money. And... 60% went to education and 40% went to um, rehabilitation. So, you know, if there was ways that we could do that, because I do think we are, like, I think, I think in the next 10 years, we'll probably have some sort of regu regulated cannabis. Mm -hmm. If there's enough of us um, are willing to work for it, psychedelics, do you know, we're already getting uh, a psychedelic research, do you know, which is phenomenal, but it's extremely elite. Yeah, it, mm. in, entirely. It is so, so gentrified and so classist. And that was going to be the point that I was going to make, the, what you were saying before about ring fencing of funds. 
So this is the difficult position I find myself in as a cannabis activist. I want uh, a legalized market, but in terms of what legalized means to the, the layman, they look at mm -hmm. Canada and America. They are not models I want. I'm, I'm happy with some of the state models over Canada, but Canada is definitely not what I want. The design of their legal system going from five laws to four, uh, from seven laws to 45 laws scares the crap out of me. The, the, the sheer scale and volume of cash that they have generated has made those companies so powerful that they're lobbying foreign governments to not legalize and free their citizens so they can build these vast greenhouses in their countries and sell cannabis to those people via the medical prescription system. Mm. I, I think 10 years is not, I think 10 years globally at this point. I think in the UK, we're looking less than 18 months at the speed of this. We've already got elements within government that we know would like Jacob Rees-Mogg with Theresa May, with Atkins, um, with a couple of others that I'm not going to name that I've learned recently that I'm, I'm going to protect my own ass by not saying that. Um, but we know that they have direct links and they are making cash hand over fist by the perpetuation of prohibition in this country. So as they deny our people and allow people that are consuming cannabis, cultivating it themselves to end up in prison, they are directly profiting from it. And that profit doesn't stay in country. These corporations are going to end up like Apple and Amazon, these ginormous um, conglomerates that own all of the global cannabis. They'll pay no tax anywhere. The, the, the um, production of it and the cultivation of it will be environmentally destructive. It will negate a great deal of its beneficial properties that are not a drug for the capitalist endeavor of getting more and more people to smoke ever more weed. Mm -hmm. So actually the refrain you get from the prohibitionist of going, oh, we don't, if you legalize it, everyone will suddenly take drugs. If you legalize in a neoliberalistic capital model where you'll end up with billboards with half-naked women fucking trying to sell you meth, but you don't have to really sell meth, never mind. Um, cannabis or something else, LSD, you know what I mean? Um, we're going to end up seeing that. And it's the perpetuation of quarterly profits is what's going to be the incentive behind that, not the protection of people, not what I'm coining now risk aversion because I'm pissed <laughs> off with saying harm reduction because it's such a loaded term. Say so that again, I coughed and I completely missed oh. it. Risk aversion instead of harm risk reduction. Aversion. Like because it. harm reduction insinuates that every mm -hmm. time you use it is harmful and we have to reduce that. Risk aversion suggests that it's potentially risky in the same way driving a yeah. car. So you wear a seatbelt in a car. We haven't banned or restricted or done anything daft with the cars. We've made the road safer. We've educated yeah, you, yeah, required no. a license. I like if it. we followed that process for drugs, we'd be in a far better place. Yeah. I mean, and even it, just harm itself, harm equals bad. There you go. You don't even have to fucking think about it. And when you don't, yeah. do you know what I mean? That's the level of digestion. It's literally bad. You, you're yeah. carrying that fucking, you're, you're carrying that sort of, uh, how do I say it? It's a sort of a level of affectivity, not effectivity, but affectivity. But it's, it's interesting. So under that model, sorry, just to, just to be um, sort of semi-relative, I read an article, I sent, I sent you this. Um, I don't know if you read it. I'm going to put you on the spot here now. <laughs> but it's, it was basically an opinion piece in... I uh, can't remember the actual um, newspaper. I guess it would, be, would have been a newspaper. And basically, it, it, it made some really loose ac sort of accusations against cannabis and cocaine to say that they're not... Um, as green as you make make uh, as they've been made out so basically mm. this the the author um when they wrote it they got they came to this sort of deduction based on the eventual sort of uh capitalization of cannabis right mm -hmm. so under 
like massive factories that are just sorry not under them but you know what i mean um under that model where you have massive factories that are just basically farming the shit out of it the equivalent i think he said was one joint had the same um was carbon footprint carbon footprint good man i was searching for that the whole way through uh carbon footprint as a ba- mm-hmm. kilogram of potatoes and i was like this is such an outlandish article it's like you're not taking anything into fucking consideration right. no it will be taken into consideration but that is under a prohibition model so then if you yeah. take cocaine for example cocaine is is pr- produced it's typically grown by incredibly impoverished farmers in one, one region who only have that to rely on. There is fuck all else that can be suited in that climate. And even if they did, the cartels in that area would kill them for not growing cocaine. So th- they grow the leaves. It then goes through a, a process chain, usually to somebody else. And then you end up with kerosene, all kinds of other chemicals that have to be flown in, which then cause carbon footprint. And then the mix of that is added to an equation of the destruction of the environment. You've then got the process and each time it's stepped on and each person and how it'll be transported. So if they're calculated that way, yeah, it would be astronomical. If you then looked at it from what if all drugs were legal, what is the best way to reduce uh, the harm to the environment? Because in this sense, they are harmful in their yeah, production. Yeah. So a cannabis cultivation, if we switch to basically going, all right, let's ring fence an area around the equator. That's where we're going to grow the majority of the weed. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, outdoor, high, high quality, real diversity, cannabinoid profiled cannabis cultivars. An equator made of cannabis. <laughs> Fucking hell, can you imagine? <laughs> Literally a green belt. belt. Yeah, a belt. green belt. So again, like all these arguments that you see that are put forward for any of this, whenever they say save the children, save the environment, all of these consequences that they are saying need to be averted are a consequence of prohibition. Mm. You know, I mean, there's one guy that I'm I'm loving Dr. Carl Hart's work at the minute and of him coming out and just going, you know what? I am a functional heroin consumer. I'm approaching my fifth year. I've written books. I'm still touring. I'm still at work. I'm, you know what I mean? He's He's currently having to consider moving to Switzerland so that the DEA doesn't take his doors off. But the fact that somebody of his caliber has come out and it's going, yeah, I enjoy these substances. Me and the wife enjoy a bit of MDMA to help us connect and rebond. Here's to a actually, book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah to, to actually have that at that level as well and not to come from what feels like quite a gentrifying class. Yeah. And I think that it's hopefully the start of an opposition to exactly what Fiona just alluded to with the, um, I see, I've just been called the medicinalization of illicit drugs because they've, they've, they've known for a long time about a lot of these substances but they've benefited more societally from keeping them illegal. Now we're at a point where MDMA is incredibly valued, valuable to the Veterans Association because they can stop soldiers getting PTSD and get them back in the field. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's the direction that they're going to use these substances in. It's quite alarming. Obviously, people with CPTSD and PTSD will benefit from the development of these therapies and whatever else, but they are going to be very cost uh, prohibitive. Do you know what I mean? The, 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 to get into them. And even then, it's still going to be a, I don't how am I going to say this? Almost like a, it feels like a cult-like initiation, the way that it's done. And I know the therapies have been developed in their own certain strategies of it, but you're, you're, you're controlling somebody in, in a very wide state into an actualized outcome. Do, do you know what I mean? I've, I put, I've, I've, I've tripped hundreds of times in, in numerous places on a variety of substances, never once in a clinic. I can't say what my brain would react like in a clinical setting, especially if I was then to recount trauma to people that I've only known through the the relationship with doctor patient. Have you seen um, 12 Monkeys? Yes. That's where I would go with it mentally, I reckon. I'd be like, do you know that? 
like when Bruce Willis is talking to Brad Pitt and it's just absolute mayhem. He's walking him around the whole thing and it's fucking mm-hmm. like it is it is um a like a parody of like a, a Batman esque uh a Batmanification of a, like in a mental asylum, which is you know what I mean? It it's 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 tragically funny, almost, if that makes sense. Do you know that kind of way? In no way would it be sort of a realistic thing. I, I don't think, anyway. If it is, that'd be fucking hell. But I can imagine absolutely tripping off my absolutely genitalia. I forgot it was on a podcast there a second. <laughs> um, in a in a in like a cold room non-decorated in like you know that kind of way i, no, the, I have the, no the, connection the, to it so they do, the, sorry they do they do decorate them typically they, they are they do take steps but what i meant by cult of is all they bring in like the sacred geometry shapes typically often deities um do you know what i mean if it mm. feels like it's 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 a lead experience whereas i don't know you can't really take a doctor i can't really see a doctor being able to take somebody out into the woods and go let's trip out here because it's not controllable to them in that sense but yeah. the most profound experience i've had on on psychedelic and entheogenic substances is in the woods by a fire at night is feeling that primal deep deep connection and the like the the washing away and acceptance of my trauma do you know mm. what i mean that life is what it is and i am powerful and capable and willing to to deal with it do you know what i mean yeah. and I, I, like i said I, I don't personally believe i can get that in those settings but again i'm someone who's had a lot of experience with psychedelic substances which so probably not the candidate they're developing these therapies for yeah so i've just answered my question <laughs> <laughs> so you you have um or are you looking to work with um entheogenic substances via through recovery um no i do you know, I, I uh, attended the Global Ayahuasca Conference. I'm working with a few people in Scotland to um, raise awareness of just the benefits and also the laws that are restricting mm-hmm. those substances. We were due to have a conference last November where we brought Pavel Bem from the Global Commission a lot of the events that we like to do are where you have a community event in the morning and then you have one in Parliament. Um, and when I say Parliament, like I mean Hollywood, mm. in the evening. And we were going to bring Pavel Bem over and who has got experience of psychedelics personally, which he's quite open about, but obviously understands um, regulation. Do you know how to regulate different different things and we were bringing him I think mainly our objective for that was to just introduce the idea to both the recovery community and the research community because currently there's no research getting done in Scotland and the the impacts like good research is showing that it's having transformative um, impacts in people's lives and when I kept and again it was one of those things when I kept mentioning it to the people in services um, around addiction were just like you know had no clue what I was talking about and didn't have any understanding on the impacts that these substances can have you know I mean there's Ibogaine, there's, you know, which can be used and have phenomenal impact on, like, really problematic heroin use, you know, 
And what we need to do, I think, really is, like we have got, especially Scotland has got a huge drug death, um, and well, drug poisoning, um, and like serious addiction issues. And if if those substances can be used in any way to help that, then why wouldn't we be using them? And clearly, why wouldn't we be using them? Because of the current drug laws. Yeah. yeah I think so we were wanting to raise that awareness and bring somebody of that calibre, just, just again, to start those conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we, I think what you said before there about what, why we're not. Yeah, it's, we legally can't because of the law, but the law then perpetuates this moralizing argument that all drugs are bad because they're all drugs. So mm. the worst depict the worst depiction of heroin addiction and sort of um, abuse on a, in a TV show or a film, the average person that's that's every heroin user. Do you know what I mean? And that's mm. what all drugs will eventually do. You get on one yeah. of them, and it's just a matter of time before that's you in, on the street. And so, so they rally against that, and then you end up with this. What I've kind of come up against a few times in, um, so I suppose it's still addiction treatment, uh, as they like to term it, is. People with no real experience that just have this purifying idea that if you can just get free, life yeah. life will be suddenly become worth it and everything will be better. And they, yeah. they, they, this is kind of what led the movement until compassion was inject- injected maybe a decade, a few decades or so ago. Of You had to let an, let an addict hit rock bottom. So you, you mm. perpetuate that cycle to force them into, into that position so then they would come and ask for help. And at that point when they asked for help, that's when you'd give them help. And I think that narrative still, I don't know where it comes from, they're still there. You know, the ideas that well, were perpetuated by the DARE campaign, they still are in the, in the minds of the youth. And we haven't had it in this country since like early 2000s. Well, I mean, could you theorize that the approach, like the enforcing of, the, of, of harsher uh, consequences, do you know that kind of way? To double down on that, Mm-hmm. Uh, based on what nothing based on no progression in scotland whatsoever do you know that kind of way the, the current approach hasn't done a fucking thing to, to help out everything that you've just listed mm-hmm. um, do you know what i mean so i mean from the top down you're going to have these 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 purists that go grand we have um harsher laws now by insinuation, that kind of goes right. A decent person would just stop. That's yeah, the that, fuck. That's what they're insinuating. That, Are you that, fucking yeah. crazy? Seriously. Yeah, and that 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 is one of the most corrosive elements of the war on drugs. It is one of the things that nearly drove me to suicide as a teenager. Was being told by my family, a lot of my friends, all the healthcare professionals around me, you need to stop doing drugs. They're going to kill you. Where when when I was discovering uh, a lot of these entheogenic compounds and, and taking MDMA and opening up to random strangers at music events or at festivals and being able to talk with my trauma with a person who, what for whatever reason, you just bond to in that way mm-hmm. and you share each other's shit, you you surrogate each other's trauma and you get off and you go on your way. Without those experiences, I I wouldn't have survived my adolescence. So then at that point to have that, that corroding in my head, it's still there every now and then, you know what mm. I mean? When I think about it, the blue light hits and I see it somewhere and I'm like, shit, what have I got? What am I doing? You know, so, oh wait, I haven't got anything in my system. I haven't done anything in, in days or weeks or whatever. So I can't, so you run through the idea of I am bad and what I am doing is wrong. Yeah. And that is still installed in us. And I know people that are in, that's in full recovery or in abstinence from all substances, that still get that twitch. The blue light goes when they're driving or whatever. And this, the, 
you get it because we've got a f- PTSD from this. Yeah, but it's from both it, sides, man. It's from it, both sides. Yeah. It's it's you've got you've got that internalization. Of course you fucking do. Do you know that kind of way? Especially when when something when you when you're constantly being told that you're a bad person for doing X, right? And then you have on the other side somebody that has not no fucking clue. Uh, but, do you know what I mean? Has has barely had sugar in their tea. Let's let's be polite about it. Right? Do you know the kind of way? And they're going, well, look, the laws are there for a reason. If you if yeah. you're breaking the law, that makes you a bad person. You're taking this substance, and that's illegal. So that makes you a bad person. You've got it from both fucking sides. Where do you expect to fucking land? Only you only go fucking downwards. Do you know what I mean? You're you're going to hit that fucking rock bottom. Is that what you, is that what fucking society is, wants? I'm getting really that, yeah. hot again. Is that not the point? Yeah, dude, I know that that um, it's a fucking hypothetical, not hypothetical, <laughs> fucking ugh, rhetorical question. But I mean, it's frustrating. It's frustrating. Oh, we're going to continue but, on yeah. doing the same fucking thing. Mm-hmm. Well, there's still but masses all... amounts of people dying. So, so this is why, look, so currently the war on drugs focuses on the victims of, the victims of uh, dependency issues, right? So it, it misses the, the 80 to 90 odd percent of people that consume all of the drugs without any real detriment to their lives or impact other than maybe when they get caught. Do you know what I mean? Yes, they are supplying illicit marketplaces, but that's the only place that they can acquire the products that they seek to consume. Um, if we scan that light onto them and that's where we focus drug policy, we'd be in a far fucking better place. But the spectrum's even wider because the, the cops are... Vic- I'm still here. The, the the cop the cops are still victims as well but the rest of society because we are pissing away hand over fist tens of billions of pounds a year in policing on the nhs with the war on drugs on on prescription contracts through the nhs for for pharmaceutical medications that could be dealt with with by allowing people to grow a plant in the back garden mm. you know what i mean so it, it's so much wider then you need to look at the environmental consequence like i said the economic consequence it's enforcement of the war on drugs and these people going yeah be harder on the drugs and then going where's the bin men why is this only yeah. once a fortnight now why is these roads not being filled well actually if you weren't empowering gangs from other countries to come and grow on mass and supply these drugs and siphon it back out and then fund it actually through international banks we'd have that money on the street if we legalized and regulated all substances a, we could control the adulterate nature of substances, so we would avoid poisonings. We could provide recommended dose based on your BMI and everything else and actually calculate something meaningful mm. when you're given a substance. You could provide an antagonist for that substance to prevent overdoses. You can provide educational resources, safe spaces, uh, peer support. There's infinitely more we can provide that means that we can take even that 10% down to a fraction. And even then, yes, there will be those of people that are going to be rallying, oh, mental health, mental health. That's still only a tiny minority. And even then, it's analogous to someone having a nut allergy. It's fine. They shouldn't consume nuts then. So we just say, don't do drugs. And if they do, then you have to work out a system of, of helping them through the, the health system. You don't then lock them in a cage and go, hey, you shouldn't have done that, should you? If they have an adverse reaction in a temporary psychotic event due to a compound, we should treat them with compassion, not cage them. You can just see it. You know, we've been thrown into a cell, and somebody's just going to turn around every time, ninety-nine percent of the time, and go, "Sorry, sir. Sorry, I, I, I know, understand my ways now, and I'm going to conform to your fucking model." Yeah, because that happens, doesn't it? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like fucking hell. What? Yeah. What? Uh, uh, and sorry. I mean, now, do you know what? I'm not in any way negating like problematic substance use is awful. You know, I have experienced it. I have been unable to stop doing what I was doing, you know, for long periods of time. 
Um, it's spiritually, emotionally, physically exhausting. And you're right, it affects like about 10% of the population. But what we also know is it's not, you know, people are like, oh, it's like equal opportunities. Do you know, it affects everybody the same. We're sitting in County Durham. County Durham has like a really, really devastating um, problematic substance issue going on. Do you know, there's people who, whose lives are devastated by it, are being wrecked by it on a daily basis, who are committing violent and non-violent crimes, do you know, to, to access those substances and who may or may not survive that, their mental health, their the violence in that community, or, you know, that won't take their own lives. And even within that, what I'm saying is, it is still better to legalise and regulate those substances. And when I say that, you know, people are just like, and, and it is very difficult to get people to see that perspective because they'll say, but this is killing my son or, you know, it's turned my daughter into somebody I don't recognise. And to just move away and say, what would happen if you gave that person that substance? And it's a big shift to ask people to make because they have invested in the issue being a really simple one. We all like a simple solution. Mm. You know, it's really, really good to have someone to blame or something to blame. And I mean, partly like a lot, or a lot of the stuff that we do, it's just that education. You know, we had Danny Ahmed from Foundations come on our um, and speak about heroin-assisted treatment. And if you'd listen to that, like that's he's the kind of voice that changes public opinion because it isn't just a story of giving people a terrible drug and them having an unhappy life. Do you know, mm -hmm. people are beginning to function. Do you know, and ideally, um, do you know, would we all want to live in a world where we were drug-free, sugar-free, vegan, meditate? Do you know, like, you might have those aspirations, but the reality is you need to meet people exactly where they're at. Mm -hmm. um, and, and our job, I think, as drug policy is to just lean in and hear people's fear. You know, I was on... The, I mean, you know it as well, Simpa, those Durham police get their um, Facebook pages generally aren't too bad, do you know, and they'd put out a thing saying we have, we've had two deaths and we think we've got a really dangerous batch of heroin. Will people just be careful? Mm -hmm. And the comments were just, some of those comments were just utterly hate-filled. Yeah. Like hate-filled. Should be a hate crime. Well, I mean, I've put in, you know, I think there is opportunity to... You, so, I mean, yeah, we could potentially find spaces to have those people removed from those sites, to be silenced, but doesn't, it doesn't stop. Like, how do you get to those people? Because it was just... And I think, obviously, like, it's online, mm -hmm. so people say all sorts of stuff online that they wouldn't in person, but... Like, there was people that said that was my uncle that died. 
you know, have some compassion and, and it didn't stop it. So you have to remember that this is like entrenched in our system. And really our job, because we are privileged, like I am not at risk of being shot by my police. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to go to prison unless they, I really piss them off and there's some dodgy one that sets me up. Do you know, but, you know, I am not living on that front line. Yeah. So what, what do I do when I have the privilege of not being on the front line? And it's just, it is having those conversations with people who I really want to just tell, go fuck yourself. Like, go fuck yourself. You, you know, like, hmm. but that's my reaction and it is not a useful one. So it's that, like, lean in and have a conversation. Why is it? Like, why have we created this space? Because if you can change them, like, it will be, do you know what? Like, you saw it. Like, we had two phenomenal, like, we we had a great PCC and a great um, chief, police chief in Mike Durham and Ron, Ron Hogg, two men, two white men with way too much power, and I don't mean that for them, but like way too much power pulled up into two men so that when they've left, mm-hmm. every drug user in County Durham is now at risk of having services removed, being arrested rather than sent into, because the next two people might not have the same. And that's, and again, it's like, how do we challenge that? How do we challenge the institution rather than the individual? and the attitude rather than the individual yeah i think it's such it's so ingrained because as we said like laws are based our laws are supposed to be when we back with appealing principles and that idea laws were based on morality and it was the idea subjectively if you go the george carlin route and reduce the ten commandments down to one thou shalt not commit violence and you can exclude from that sort of sexual violence, theft, uh, property yeah. damage, et cetera, et cetera. And so that was the foundation of it. Then the war on drugs came along and all of a sudden it created a whole section of laws for things that people, only a handful of people thought were bad. Whereas before, it, it, murder was wrong. You could, you, you could have ex, extenuating circumstances that could reduce it. You have a lesser degree in manslaughter, et cetera. There are mechanisms within the law, but always that is accepted as a bad fucking thing. All of a sudden, then drugs are thrown into this. At the point when the war on drugs started, we had very few people that actually had dependency issues on any substances because they weren't prolific. It, what, they weren't all that well known. The harder we went on the war on drugs, we created this information and this, this campaign where you were either the bad person that did drugs, and if you did drugs, you're a rapist and a murderer and a kitty fiddler and a terrorist and all those other things, or you're a good person. So if you're then not a person that does drugs, you have this superior, superior moralizing complex where you can be like, we, they do drugs, so therefore they're a bad person. They deserve to be homeless. They deserve to be attacked. They deserve to be arrested and thrown in a cage. The, do you know what I mean? And I think it's that mechanism within them, the, the idea, the weaponization by extremist fundamental Christianity and neoliberalistic capitalism, that, that can, can co- a horrible mix together yeah. is, is create the chaos in the Western, modern Western world. And the war on drugs is just just their ultimate tool in doing that because they widen the knowledge of drugs. Then if you look at, say, what happened with what Gary Webb exposed with the CIA in the 80s and the Iran-Contra deal, governments are involved in funding drugs, on uh, putting drugs on the streets. So they then kind of pr- proliferate this idea of dependency, get people struggling in other communities that then will suffer with dependency issues because of socioeconomic factors and then demonize them. 
It's the John Ehrlichman quote all over again. Mm-hmm. You know, the Nixon advisor who said that by associating cocaine with the blacks and marijuana with the hippies, we could demonize them night after night on the evening news, raid their meetings, break up their, uh, their societies, arrest their leaders. It, it, that's We still live under that paradigm now. So unfortunately, a lot of the people that are in that system, yeah, there are good people, naive people, and not all together viciously minded people, but they, they work within a framework that it's the Upton quote of uh, you can't expect a man to understand something that his job is dependent, salary is dependent on him not understanding it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And so because they're inside of it, they can't see exterior. And then most people, as they come up exterior with alternative ideas, get swallowed up by it and they have to conform within that system. And I think that channeling is why we're seeing the progression towards a prohibition 2.0, where all we're doing is swapping the dealers. That, that's all yeah. that's going to happen. We're just, we're just, instead of it, guys in track suits, it's guys in business suits. They're going to trade it as commodities. They're going to ring fence it. Instead of violent gangs, it's going to be boardroom takeovers. But we're still going to suffer on the streets. Yeah, the products may be pure, but the, the, the mechanisms by which they supply them will be an asset stripping mechanism. Do you know what I mean? To siphon funds from our communities to then go up the corporate ladder to be cashed in the, in the Seychelles. Do you know what I mean? So unless we develop community-based or nationalized yeah. uh, drug regulation models, we all we're going to end up with is, is new cartels. That, that's, that's just it. And then the old cartels are still going to move around. Look at what happened in Mexico. They're starting to take over fucking avocados. Do you know what I mean? We, we, we have to have sensible conversations about these things. I'm not saying approach all these bad gangs and say, do you want to be business people? But you can't then just go to the, <laughs> the, the, the poshest of posh Tory business people and go, oh, well, you can have the drugs now. And then most of the people who are in the middle of regular consumers that have no real issue with it are just handed over this, this market with them populating. It's just handed over. Mm. Prices will go up. Look what's happened in the gangs for the past 20 years. Most drug prices have remained steady while inflation has fucked. C- economies have collapsed. Countries have come and gone. But the staple price of drugs globally has remained. What happens when the capitalists take this over and all of a sudden they get to control what ships everywhere else? Do, you, do we really think that that's not going to create an even stronger illicit market? Well, I mean, Canada is proof of that. The black market has not gone away. Do you know what I can But here's the thing. It's not like... I understand the deflation. I do because... I don't see this as a potential. I see this happening. This is the, the, all of the fucking architecture is in place. We're out of we're we're not in a, a a position to run the fucking race. We're in the stands fucking watching it. They're running the race. Do you know that kind of way? Well, we're still talking about the fucking race. Oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to do whatever. They're fucking doing it. Do you know that kind of yeah. way? So, I guess my question, and I put it out there to the room at more not to sort of put pressure on anybody. I'm not going to throw you under the bus, Fiona. Um, would be, given that that for me is an inevitability, Prohibition 2.0, how do we move forward in that, do you know that kind of way? How do we combat that? What 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 could we do? Um, and I appreciate that that's probably not a very easy thing to, to answer. But I mean, <clears throat> there has to be a way for us to cement the reinforcing of um, communities across the board that and you could probably use maybe lost seaside towns, you know, heavily impoverished areas as as example areas to actually try to, to trial this out. Do you know that kind of way to actually have, I don't know, say a place like Durham, right? Well, do you know what we, we're going to we do? We did is this. We're gonna tr- the, sorry, they go did, ahead. Sorry, they did this in Seam. 
15 minutes that way on the coast. Really? One hog cleaned the fucker up before any of this got publicized about the checkpoint scheme and everything else with Fiona's intervention and other individuals. They started to really kind of go, holy fuck. Drugs are a problem, but the consequences of people taking drugs under this paradigm is far fucking worse. Okay. You know what I mean, people uh, people stealing, people having to um, s- sell themselves to the sexually, people having to, you know, commit really weird acts of crime because on a spur, they, you just see money. You walk past something, you see something that's worth 100 quid. You break a car window, whatever. Mm. It's, it's inquisitive crime. It's just crime that is not usually opportunistic. Pl- planned. Yeah. Mm. Um, and they saw a massive dro- a dro- a drop in this because it was only a handful of serious problematic users in the area that had no other income. Yeah. You know what I mean? If several of them were homeless and so they had to then steal for food and everything yeah. else, had to then, they were sleeping rough and were getting caught. So they'd be constantly in supply and in and out, which meant that they were stealing, scoring, not being able to use, yeah. losing, having to go back out. And as soon as they're released on the street, what are they gonna, you've got to go then earn the money the cops have just taken off you again yeah. to go score again to get back to where you were at the start of the day. But how far, so, sorry, how far was that progressed? Do you know? I mean, I'm what I'm envisaging in my head is some sort of provable top slice model. That's, we, we ha- that's ir- you, you can't yeah. refute it. You cannot refute it. Well, I mean, you, if sorry. we take, say, heroin as a separate entity for this conversation, the safe consumption site model is pretty ubiquitous around the world. And to date, not a single consumer has died yeah. in the presence of one of these places. You know, yeah. this is what we had, obviously, Peter Crycan on this exactly. previous, previous episode with his uh, mobile safe injection site. Um, but if you then look at the broader language of the broader drug spectrum, it, it has to come from a, from a government policy. It has to be enshrined in the law. Yeah, we can't right. just allow corporate lobbyists to go, actually, can we lift this percentage here? You move that a schedule too, because then we can create these products. We'll sell them under prescription, wink, wink, medical, wink, wink, but then we'll push everybody in the world that's ever had any problem through this system, mm. funneling cash into their pockets, which then gives them further data sets to, again, move towards analogs and synthetics. I think what we need is our Stonewall moment. We need all drug users and consumers from all all walks of life to stand up and go, I use drugs. I am proud to admit I use drugs. I am demonized, vilified, vilified and criminalized by the system, but I am not a bad person. Drug pride. Drug pride. Hell yeah. Let's get take a flag. It, yeah, if we, t- if we take that step, if we take that I'm step, not though, I'm, I'm not either, because honestly, that that's what we need. Because once people realize there are tens of millions of people that enjoy drugs, I mean, just look at your average fucking pub nowadays. Pubs only exist because of cocaine, because of the endogenous mix, which creates coca ethylene when you drink alcohol and sniff cocaine, makes makes all these men in, in positions where they're, they're, they're working shit jobs that they hate. They're often in positions, marital positions, or family positions they don't want to be. So it gives them that escapism. Mm. So then that starts as a Friday thing, as a Saturday thing. It then starts, I've had mates that are sniffing on work breaks that are driving while sniffing off uh, CD cases and shit to go and score more. Do you know what I mean? It ends up in, in, a, in a difficult situation because there's no one there to challenge it because there's a whole culture developed there that's problematic use, but it mirrors alcohol consumption. Do you know what I mean? Whereas if you look at then say a lot of other um, cultures, say like ecstasy, for example, because of the very nature of ecstasy consumers, if the people use it regularly at raves or whatever, you tend to have a wide berth of friends in that network and you care about them. Like you, you really build bonds with them. So you don't allow them to slip into those sort of problematic. So what I'm saying is that there's different cultures. Mm. Whereas, and if we unify as a larger thing, we can help each other the fuck out. We can recognize certain problematic areas. We can recognize that actually what you're looking for when you're using that mix of those polydrug consumption, you could find in this and actually reduce your risk of heart, heart failure or whatever else. You know what I mean? We, there's, 
education we could provide. And I think that by doing that, we get the best education information that we could then take to government with the best idea of what structure, not a misuse of drugs act, but but a drugs act would look like. And in this drugs act, would would have yes scheduling for for pharm- pharmaceuticalized compounds because often they are a, a lot more dangerous and typically because of the nature of them are a lot more potent whereas we could create a spectrum of access for everything so if you then look at say a highest dose of a, an ecstasy pill at 150 milligrams whereas at the minute we're selling 10 pound gurners because of prohibition when i first started there were five pound pills and they had somewhere like 75 to 100 milligrams of, of mdma or mda active compound right because of prohibition, the number of pills mean the severity of the, 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 the prison sentence you get. So what the press has started doing is they then press them into 10 pound pills, which would then have anywhere from 300 to 500 milligrams of active compounds. And yeah, so then people, you buy one of them and you snap and have one each. Whereas yeah. back in our day, you double drop and then you'd, you'd half one with your mate like at three, four in the morning. You know what I mean? I can hear all the ravers now listening to this going, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> um, but it just shows that prohibition worsens the model, whereas if we can then control the access, yeah. it's, it's the same with heroin consumption. Most overdoses are either adulterated product or a lack of knowledge of how strong it is. So if you imagine it's shandy to absinthe, and you, you're yeah, going yeah, yeah. one dealer and you're scoring shandy for a week, so you know the amount you want to cook up, right? Yeah. He then switches up his batch, and it's all of a sudden it's whiskey, and you don't fucking know. You've got to hit your, your, your normal amount and you're in a dangerous position. Do you know what I mean? And because then you're around other users that are going, I'm not going to, uh, I'm, other consumers that are going, I'm not going to fucking prison. They are then more inclined to abandon you in that situation than they are to seek help. Do you know what I mean? Whereas a lot of other drugs, if you end up in a problematic position because of the um, perception of the police and the, the lesser severity of the crime, you will get help. So look at the difference with ketamine. Do you know what I mean? A, a lot of people that I, I know, unfortunately, that ended up with problematic ketamine use would blow out their nose and then move towards intravenous. And then that ends up in a, a dangerous route. But typically then the culture of that, and because ketamine's class C, if you then overdose in that situation, your peers are more likely to seek assistance. So you're more likely to live. Well, How fucked up is that? That's fucking crazy. <laughs> One thing I just wanted to sort of bring up because you said it right at the very, very start of this, and I've been holding it on the whole way through your diatribe, right? <clears throat> but it's all well and good saying, yeah, we need, we need sort of, we need to cement this in our political establishments, yeah? When you don't have a fucking opposition, <laughs> what, what hope have you got? No, no, that's a, that's a, do you know what? That's not a flippant Wait. question. That is a genuinely oh, yeah. serious question. Say yeah. you have a, 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 not a lesser, a lesser numerical party, Mm-hmm. I won't necessarily put anybody under the bus here, but that that would that would take up the mantle of proper um, social progression, drug reform, support, 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 support. I mean, even if you, do you know what? That's hard enough as it is for a small party, right? It is. Even if you were the opposition, right? It's fodder. It's fodder for for. For um, what are the, the three the, the three word fucking phrases that are constantly for build better better whatever I don't know what the mm. fuck they are but they constantly use them <laughs> they put them on the front of the fucking thing and be, it, it's proven to work it it's it's you know it it, yeah. it 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 oscillates in your brain that's all you can fucking think about so I mean if you're kind of going if you're kind of going oh right 
You want you want to you want to um, sabotage some sort of British values, right? Or you know, and and you know, progress into this chaotic um, idea of fucking everybody just running around, and it is like Blade Runner and shit like that, except with drug use. I'm really off tilt today with with all of my <laughs> stuff. None of that made sense. Really, really didn't. But I. But hope... there's. Sorry, go ahead. There, there's always opportunity. So if you can appeal to government, you appeal to local authority or you appeal. I mean, we did, we've been working with um, a community of women in County Durham and they went to speak to um, local um, councillors and they made changes through using their voice in that space. You know, there's always opportunity and I think sometimes if we looked at it's like it has to be here, then that's that's the only opportunity you'll see. And I think part of that is as well, I look at the spaces and um, there isn't much diversity. Mm. There's not much diversity um, in drug policy. Do you know where's... And so what I like to do is go into other spaces which are really new and create new solutions for other things. Do you know, so what, how are environmentalists tackling? Like, I, I mean, I just think Extinction Rebellion are phenomenal. Like, what can we learn from Extinction Rebellion? What can we learn from trans communities right now? Mm, like people yeah. who are on the cutting edge mm-hmm. of real innovative um change yeah and then bring that to your space and often as well just really being humble and saying i'm not the voice here like i'm do you know yeah i'm just not that voice Mm. like i have no idea what it's like to be 20 Mm. and using drugs i've got no idea do you know so instead of trying to guess that shut the fuck up and give your chair to that 20-year-old or to the disabled person. And, I mean, do you know, we're talking about drug use. I know that in County Durham there's been a huge, huge um, issue around young Vietnamese people being trafficked into this country to grow cannabis, to serve that market. Where are these? Do you know, where are their voices? And, you know, and even when I see that, it's like I see there was something appalling in one of the papers. And it was like, we've caught these three gang leaders and they were young men, like in their 20s and 30s. And they were touting them as drug, like as, um, you know, gang leaders. Five of them were no fixed abode. It was like, you've caught homeless youth. Yeah. And you're now going to, so those are the, do you know, where is it that it's just like so? Yeah, where's where's the edge and where where's the bleeding edge? I, th- I think because we all want to sit in the rooms and drink the coffee. And I mean, do you know? I don't know. We, I have often just want wanted to go to a conference where I see my friends, where I've got, you know, like just to fe- feel quite safe and unchallenged in my righteousness. And I don't think righteousness is going to serve us in these spaces. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it really has to be that, like, get dirty and speak to the person in the in the bus stop who voted for, you know, 
like as some sort of neo-Nazi and has just burned, you know, I mean, literally in our communities, there's people that are doing vigilante stuff. You need to speak with them. Yeah. You know, on a one-to-one, I'm not saying you engage them. I'm not saying you give them platforms, but, you know, like really what? Challenge yourselves. Yeah. Challenge yourself. You know, and I would say that to everybody, Mm -hmm. you know, because I see it. I see this space where it's like, Oh, yeah, completely agree with that. Oh, but, you know, I don't know about this. And it's like, find out why you don't know. Like, why? Mm. I think it's what you alluded to earlier, though. Drug policy especially has got a serious lack of diversity issue. It also has quite a serious class issue. Mm. And a lot of the issues that they are creating policies for because they are viewing as the typical consequences of drug consumption are actually socioeconomic consequences of things like um, austerity. You know what I mean? Hmm. So they're incapable of seeing the consequences of their political ideology in that sense. So everybody needs a demon. So you, you transfer that over and there you go. That's, that's, that's drugs. So then to solve the drugs, even the people that are then the reformist, it's still from a classist position. It's still from quite a very privileged position. And we all suffer from this narrow perception. We cannot view the world from more than this. Even when we do that, we move. We lose focus of the other thing. We, we're only meant to be able to comprehend and, and interact so much in the world. Do, do you know what I mean? So the idea that one person can sit in the throne of something and then go, I believe and think this, and this should be true for everybody else is, is a fallacy and it's bullshit and it's dangerous. And I think the only way that we get to the consensus is the people who are not at risk, the people who are in positions that can say, yeah, you know what? I enjoy a bit of cocaine a couple of times a year, art festivals, me and pills, or oh, raving. You know I mean? Those kind of people need to come out and admit to that. We need to change the public's perception of the people that consume drug, drugs to protect the people who have been damaged most by this. And they are the most vulnerable in our society that are most susceptible to taking the ultimate escapism in, in drugs, in any substance that allows them to escape from the spiritual, physical, mental, physical pain of being in that position that they are in in life. Yeah. And until we can arrive at creating policies that are actually compassionate enough to help these people, the best thing we can do is fix the, the drug policies to lessen the perpetual harm by prohibition. And then you'll see this anyway. Look at the studies. Once you support people, don't push them off the drug. Don't force them onto someone else. But if you support them, give them a clean version of their drug, they typically titrate their own consumption. Not always, but often will then lead to a complete absence of it. If they have got supported housing, support back into work, and they've got a long-term, ther- uh, long-term therapy, they have the option and the ability to then help rebuild their life in whatever direction they choose. And everybody deserves that opportunity. I mean, Christ, look at what happens within the UK police. If you're a cop that develops a dependency issue, the police will give you time off and will pay for your your treatment. And then you'll be welcome back on the force. I think, I mean, it is like I I hear all those arguments about, you know, if everybody, you know, if people choose to come out about their own personal drug use, I think that's a value. But I don't think people should do anything. I remember that around HIV and it was like everybody that's HIV, like Freddie Mercury, I mean, you won't remember this, Freddie Mercury like died a day after he came out and there was a whole lot of AIDS activists were furious at him and it's like, it's his personal life. Like we get to have privacy. Like you get to choose to disclose what you feel like and you keep private what's private too. 
And that's different for each individual. And yeah, so I do hear that, like everybody should come out. And it's like, well, no, just what if have, it, have compassion for the people that don't. Do you know, I mean, it was the same like when it was illegal to be gay. Do you know, a lot of people chose not to be on that front line. They just didn't want it. Mm-hmm. And that's, and personal choice has to, personal choice in everything, including out in yourself as a drug user or whatever, has to always be there too. Oh, no, without a doubt, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're just essentially regurgitating the same sort of system, failed system from the other side, right? Mm-hmm. Do you know that kind of way? Yeah. So it's not necessarily, um, uh, in general terms, it sounded like there there should have been an onus, like you have mm. you have to come out and do this. Well, no, I mean, there what we've been banging out, uh, banging on about in this podcast quite a few times is um, the lack of contextual application. Do you know that kind of way? And that can come across. Mm. That can be applied to fucking anything. You know that kind of way. But it's the same. It's the same here. I mean, you you don't have absolutely do not have to be on the front line waving that newly yeah. formed uh, drug pride flag, but you, I'm sure there's ways that you can manage that contextually to, to do you know what I mean, and you can weigh that up. Um, and the reason I I sort of I I'm, I'm I'm on this weighing up of things, all right, and this is why I agree with your point, Fiona, is there is a an embedded reluctance for an awful lot of people to identify as a drug consumer right because you know that kind of way just to really use a sort of a really poor um summary or you know like a stereotypical guess of somebody that would be reluctant in that in that example would be say somebody that has a job that 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 is working 40 hour week uh 40 hours a week that potentially by just voicing something has that removed from them and thus has any sort of uh, that has a cascading effect if uh, you know what i mean if if you're on if you're if you're on if you're dancing on the fucking line and all of a sudden you've lost your job because you've said something online in 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 that regard Mm -hmm. then it's going to be you know what i mean you're you're going you're you you can understand why people would be completely reluctant in that regard so my point was and this goes over to you simple all right how can we for those that really want to, but uh, to, to come out in that regard, how can we sort of reinforce their sense of security or encourage change so that they have that level of security so that they can fucking speak out and just go, look, I'm not a problem. Do you know that kind mm-hmm. of way? I mean, yeah. you might have a problem with me, but I'm I'm here and I'm here to fucking to say my piece. And I shouldn't I shouldn't have any sort of negative um actions taken against me just for verbalization anyway yeah. uh, you know what i mean yeah I well so um i should have caveated i suppose that statement with that it's it's obviously it's a spectrum so it's mm-hmm. i suppose from from silent to screaming in in that sense and we're all upon that if you as an adult consumer of drugs at any point in your life where you you intermittently consume them um or have been and did so with no uh, adverse consequences to you you're you're on that spectrum so you're either someone that enjoyed festivals when you were younger and you did some drugs and whatever and you did a little bit of coke at the pub sometimes and then you just stopped and you had kids and you then now become a silent hypocrite and then teach your kids that all drugs are bad and reinforce that to another generation or there's then so there's little steps so you can 
you could then teach your kids differently. You could speak openly to your family. You know what I mean? You could, it, it, we've seen this obviously with the movement in cannabis. Again, again, we, we, nobody in the cannabis movement asked everybody to stand up. It said the people that could, should. Do you know what I mean? And the people that want yeah. to, will. And that, that, that's it. It's not, a, an, it's not really an, a, an enforcing moral obligation. It's just kind of the idea of going, well, you're in a position now that you could do it. So it's your decision as to what you, what you do. Yeah, yeah. And obviously I don't blame people for kind of, for, for who they are, as I often say on this podcast, if I was born, you lived, you raised you, I'd act as you, I'd think as you, I would be you, there'd be no difference. So therefore I, I don't hold anything against anybody. But ultimately mm. what you were saying to what we could do to lessen that, this is again where it comes back down to policy. We have to protect people's employment. We have to we protect somebody's right to go, I am gay. And your boss goes, You're fired. You mm. sue the fuck out of that guy. Yeah, that's yeah. illegal. That's illegal. Yeah, yeah. You you you're disabled and you lose your job. It's again discrimination. So there's there's ways we can look at this. There was an interesting case around a cannabis consumer who worked at a recycling plant in the UK. Uh, I put this in one of the last week in weed blogs recently. And he was sacked because of a random drug test showed cannabis. He was a driver's mate, so he wasn't actually responsible for the vehicle and was never responsible for any machinery that would, you know, um, otherwise be deemed dangerous. Uh, He was sacked on the spot because of um, the the positive test. He took his employer to a tribunal. The judge agreed with him and said that the the employer had violated his his rights and and, um, unfairly dismissed him because he hadn't taken into consideration why he consumed cannabis, hadn't taken into consideration if it affected his work, which given his record, it hadn't. Um, and he said that the only reason the man had lost his job was because it was illegal. So there were, you can see the systems cracking apart in various places. Yeah. People challenging the laws with drug driving. There's actually then the farmer elite system coming in to change the law for them, which means then people who've not looked at these documents for 50 years are suddenly going, you want us to just erase this one sentence? What about the 16 other paragraphs that make no fucking sense? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And we're exposing light to it. So everything we can do to cast a light on it. So I'm not saying that drug consumers should go out and evangelicalize and destroy their lives. Yeah. But I, but I am saying that if you have the opportunity to, to say it to somebody, do something about it, especially if you say are a drug consumer that demonizes other drug users. So if you then use a bit of cocaine and go, I'm fucking dirty smack rats. Tell you what, they're fucking smack rats. Them sort of people, it is just woof. They cause more damage to all the spectrum of this than some of the hardcore prohibitions. I've just hit my nose pushing that out. Uh, No, no, right here is, while you're on this momentum then, is that a question that we could potentially put towards unions? To kind of go, here's the thing though, right? Correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm just speaking on off the cuff here, right? The consumption of any substance is not illegal. No, it's not illegal so to be for, high. For it to be in your system, okay, and for so. you, and for yeah, but, but for it to be in your system, right, and and for you to lose your job because it's in your system, the consumption isn't the isn't the illegal part. How can you be fired for that? Surely there can be a pushback from a union perspective on it's, that side of things. It's in it's it's in contract law. So if you look at um, most, if not all, con- contract law. Uh, it has a clause in the bottom for, for drugs, uh, usually an alcohol and drug policy. Yeah. And within uh, within that, it will say that it is the company's policy to dismiss anybody that either fails a random test or... Yeah, but can that be challenged to... through the union? Um, to be changed? It, 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 it would take a brave union leader. If we think of how entrenched politics are in this country, the unions are more entrenched. So you know what you, you were talking then, about? Before, you're talking, talking about then. before about... about talking about... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But fingers crossed. Um, wait, what you're talking about for about politics, right? It's it's the Bill Hicks thing. If I agree with the puppet on the left, I agree with the puppet on the right. 
it's still the same dude. So that when we're having these conversations, we're still having them in, in that ideology. So it's still framed within the limitations of their expectations and what they'll accept. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So that you said we need an opposition. You're correct. But you unfortunately, it is not any one of the parliamentary parties that exists today because by their nature to get elected, they, they can't have radical enough views That's my point. That, 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 that will actually get this voiced. Mm. So we need to build from the outside so you take the public. If you can then go to each politician from each party and go, um, we've got a union of 6 million people here who regularly use drugs. And they say, if you vote for them, we'll put you in power. We'd be the largest voting bloc in the country by far. Mm -hmm. We would have clout, we would have influence, and we would change the laws immediately. You're listening then. <laughs> <laughs> but this, this, this is what I'm saying. Though. Again, it's, we are the largest unrepresented people, and we look, some of the most beautiful, creative, wonderful, diverse, unique individuals I have ever met are people that have to shroud themselves in secrecy, hide their lives, dampen their beauty and their light, because of fear of ramifications, because they like to smoke a bit of DMT, or they love to get around with a bunch of mates to go hiking and take mushrooms. They're not bad people. I've got enough friends that are functional users of some of the harshest drugs that you can think of right now as listeners. The worst depiction you've got from movie and TV. I've got friends that will, air quotes, recreationally, as adult consumers, enjoy these substances and it not affect their fucking lives. The worst part of it is having to go and meet the people that usually supply this shit. Whereas if it was from a regulated place, they would actually interact zero with criminality and cause zero criminality. Yes, 100% agree with that. Beautiful. Um, we've covered quite a lot of the issues that I wanted to talk about. This is something we tackled actually in the last one, which is, I suppose, all three sort of issues that we've kind of sort of, we, we haven't really touched on sex work, but sex work, sort of HIV um, and drug consumption and stigma. There is a, a cross trend with stigma between these things. And if you happen to be in a Venn diagram of all of these things, society demonizes you beyond measure. What steps can any reform organizations or movements do to, in, to include the consequences of what prohibition do, can do to drug consumers, ego pushing them into sex trade or to um, developing illnesses like hepatitis or HIV from not being able to get clean access? Um, I think we need to remember that sex work, like drug use, 90% of people engage in it and do not need to access services or do that problematically. Um, mm -hmm and we hear about the 10% that do. And there's a really strong sex worker movement. I would encourage you to get somebody from there on to speak. I'd love that. Um, in drug policy, I always think we need to look at who our closest allies are. And, you know, we try and create platforms where people from that movement can come in and speak. Because it's really strange, like, what works in certain... So, for instance, there's a di there's diversion schemes in the US that were touted as fantastic um, by a lot of drug policy people, and the conversations weren't had with sex workers, and the those diversion schemes were really really damaging the lives of sex workers. So it's about just like is who's not in the room? Why aren't they there? Do you know? Pull up another chair takes five minutes off your time to speak to give it to somebody so that we just get like a full range in the room i think that's always really important to me yeah mm. yeah um as an organization we are really really trying to do that you know the next panel that we're hoping to put on 
like we had Danny come and speak about heroin assisted treatment and we're going to do one around sex work and se sex work reform and drug policy reform. Yeah. It comes back to just like the simple application of a basic interaction. Yeah. That's all it is. That's all it is. And like, just to go back to sort of the Facebook, because we're talking about stigma and stuff like that. <clears throat> regardless, regardless of like, you may feel the need to jump in and have like an early opportunity at, at a joke or a jest or have some flippant fucking remark that makes you feel better about yourself. But honest to fuck, that's harder than what we what Fiona's just talked about just there. Just sit down and talk to people. Sit down mm. and take yourself out of the fucking equation. Take your bullshit and leave it at the fucking door and just talk to people, man. The, uh, on, a, on a sort of a light, lighter note, I mean, I, I bring this up in relation, right? I can't remember. I, I'm, I'm going to do this in injustice, but there was a, a documentary that I watched and it, it was a very simple thing where a lady was able to sit down on a chair opposite a person and fully remove um, herself from any uh, any part of the, the, the equation. And she never even spoke to the other person. And the whole idea was to show empathy, to actually physically uh, just connect by looking at a person without saying anything and removing any of the fucking um, the bullshit self-validation that we all go through on, on a daily basis. And she was able to do this. And she did it with like 100 people in a fucking row to a point where like you come in and you sit down or whatever. And, and then w once you've had your experience, she'd take a moment, refresh herself. Literally, you could see her actually ridding it. She had a process and the whole lot. And the reaction that some of, some of these people had, some people would sit down in that chair and it was like, you're talking about big fucking strong men or whatever you know like like this kind of shaped men right whatever and they're like oh this is all bullshit and she'd sit there and she'd concentrate 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 and whatever and eventually she'd just look and by that time when she was she decided that she was looking at somebody she was in that mindset of just complete connection right and you would see these like big fucking men or whatever break down and start fucking crying without a word without a fucking word their families are there and a the whole lot you're, you're forcing it they're like do you know that kind of way yeah. and literally because of that 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 connection was made in such a powerful way people lost their shit it became an art piece i think i need to find it and you need to it watch is it. an art piece yeah um, yeah she's quite a famous performance artist uh, oh so you know you know who i'm talking about but you can yeah. see the reason i brought it, brought it up is such a simple thing that we overlook a very basic interaction of having a a form of respect for the other person without you as yourself that mm -hmm. uh, we seem to be missing that especially online especially like you know that kind of oh i need to be in there to get the likes or whatever do you know that kind I of way i think it's the slowing the slowing because it's oh. the same the same that you find on when you meditate or when you take your time individually you slow yourself and you usually you, you'll process some emotions. So if you quieten yourself, sometimes you'll giggle. You'll, you'll have a sudden laugh and it'll just reverb through you. You'll have a, a cry or just you'll scream. You'll want to just some instinct will say, do this thing. And if you quieten yourself, allow yourself to do it and it passes. 
And then once you've done that, you're receptive again. You're not built, built up with all this. So imagine a lot of those burly, poorly, burly blokies that you described yeah. will have been individuals that because, oh, my dad, dad's still crying. I'm raising my yeah. son proper. He's literally got everything built up. So it was probably like this adverts and, and all the other actual genuine emotional things, but everything that impacts us as humans, even the, the sound in, in films and stuff is so attuned nowadays yeah. to tweak emotional responses. Yeah. So even it's the harder we put our ego to be like, no, 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 you're still holding that shit. Mm. So in taking those moments, yeah, you, you, you have that. And to experience that with another person is so bonding because it's, it's trusting. You make yourself vulnerable. Most people won't, experience, won't express themselves in those ways until they're hidden. They will go into their car or they'll, they'll go into a toilet cubicle or they'll get into the covers in bed or something like that. They'll yeah. remove themselves from their life, experience the emotion, and then go back to it. Yeah. We do, we're doing it wrong. We're supposed to go through life, experience the thing. If someone pisses you off, express it. But first, when it's through your own fucking filter. So is this an ego, an ego game I'm playing with myself? Am, am, I, am I tripping myself up here? Yeah. If you've gone through that process and still want to verbalize whatever the thing, then it's clearly a genuine, sincere thing that needs to be articulated and brought into existence. Mm. Whether a good or bad reaction is brought from it, the reaction is necessary. And I think that if we started communicating that way, whereas when you're online, look at the, the comments. It, I mean, obviously not saying anything against dyslexic community, but the, the way that these comments are often structured from the people, the most hateful comments are the most fractured uh, grammar in English. Hmm. Of, often because they're just trying to pound the fucking thing out. They've seen something, it's triggered in them that emotion, it's hit that wall, they then need to transfer and project that. And social media allows them to, they don't even have to see the face of it, the person exactly. they can instantaneously go, exactly. I'm pissed off, ha, exactly. now it's yours. Exactly. And then someone else pisses them off and it goes, there. and all it is is just, they're a creation for this emotional output. Yeah. They're, they're not themselves dealing with it. So they're projecting it. And whereas before these grumpy people, these kind of people, you don't ever harm a few people because most people wouldn't want to associate with you. But now you can create multiple accounts and you can get on all kinds of platforms and you can spend days and weeks and months just, just venting and doing all of it. Do you know what I mean? It creates an unhealthy feedback loop. It's the same sort of cycle you end up with drugs. It's the setting in which you you exude the behavior. Do you know what I mean? And if you have control over that, you're less likely to end up in a risky situation. Interesting. So, so something, something, to, something to ponder there. I, I'm, I'm actually, I'm just coming down from the emotional. I was getting really emotional telling that story. Like, listen, guys, I need to go. Oh, sorry. No, can I ask you one more question? You got time yeah. for one more? Go on. Then. Um, so, what's the future hold? Mm-hmm. What does the future hold for you? <laughs> I'm gonna have my tea. <laughs> I'm gonna have my tea and some PlayStation. That's my future. <laughs> I like it. Live it living in the moment. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank we thank you yeah. very much, Fiona. Um we'll let you get off to your PlayStation and some tea. Um oh I'm blinking out. Uh thank you very much. I'm so glad we got the opportunity to re-record this. Hopefully, when we have done with this, we will have the audio and this will be out um very soon. But once again, thank you very much for joining us. Oh. Oh. And when we're out of lockdown, we'll all get together. I hope, yeah, I hope it's I think, you know, when you were saying that, like, Johan Harry says the opposite of addiction is not abstinence, it's connection. And that's kind of what you guys are talking about. Hell yeah. Actually, yeah, actually, you spot on. I totally did not intend for that i mean that was probably my my interpretation of it is probably less aesthetic than, than johan harry's would be do you know that kind of way but yeah I, I i i i think that i think it has to be that because 
Yeah. If we keep going the way we're going, we're fucking doomed. We are doomed. Yeah. Hell yeah. I think uh, just come up with a new hashtag. Community over criminalization. Build communities out of people that consume drugs yeah. rather than criminalizing them. How's that for a novel idea? There you go. Um, yeah, so thank you very much for joining us, Fiona. Um, you can check out uh, Recovering Justice at recoveringjustice.co.uk, I believe. It's not, it's .org.uk. Uh, oh, .org.uk. I'm sorry. You will find the correct link in the bio below. Um, please do, if you enjoyed this, check out The Simple Life at patreon.com forward slash Simple Life. Follow us on all social media platforms at Simple Life. I've been Simple Carter. Our wonderful guest has been Fiona Gilberton, and he has been Maka. Peace and love, folks. Bye. Bye.